You're listening to a Glasgow Women's Library podcast. This is part of our 21 Revolutions programme, celebrating two decades of changing minds at Glasgow Women's Library. For more information on the library, our 21 Revolutions programme, or any of our other work, visit our website at womenslibrary.org.uk. An innocuous tale of love and romance. It looks sore. It looks all wrong. The skin's wrinkled at the shoulders on the pole, stretched out of shape, so it files in folds. If you could look over the top edge of the picture, you would see down into the empty sack of the woman's body. Except it's not a sack either. More like a swimsuit made of skin, but with ribs. You can see the ribs through the skin. And the boobs sit on top of the ribcage just like normal. What gets to you most, apart from the handles on the hips, like pot handles, and the yellowish, sort of dead-looking skin, is that there's no, there's no, well, no vagina, just two holes for the legs. Her friend Rosa's birthday was on one of those bright Saturdays when the sun hits the back of the house from early morning and comes streaming through the bedroom curtains. Inga managed to sneak out of the room without waking her sisters. Her mother was back in bed with a cup of tea after the van had collected her feather for work. Nobody else was up. She had peace and quiet to think, wash her overall and dry it, first by rolling it in the tool and trampling it with her bare feet, then ironing it on a low setting. Steam rose from it, but she kent how long she could press on the nylon without it melting. It was warm, dry and crisp when she put it on. And now here she was walking to the paper shop, down the empty shining street that was still wheat for the rain in the night. No shops were open. At Chine W. Tate's across for the cathedral, somebody was washing the windows. The glass shimmered and moved in the sun like water. A group of boys, dressed in a kind of naval uniform, went past and wolf whistled. She kept her face stony and looked straight ahead. They must be cadets off some boat berthed at the pier. She'd reached the corner when one of the boys came running after her. So what's wrong with me, he said, earnest and pimply, looking her in the eye. She was flustered. Nothing's wrong with you, she said. I already have a boyfriend. Which wasn't true, but the cadet peeled away from her and ran back to his friends. The order had arrived in the shop with her name in it, thank goodness. Mr Wilson handed it to Inga, still wrapped in the original brune paper when she got in, and then he started cutting the string on the bundles of newspapers, setting small piles on the counter and squaring them off. She stuck the parcel in the drawer underneath to open later. Mr Wilson was in one of his silent moods, so it wasn't easy to ask him, but she did anyway. Have you thought any more about, well, you know, what I asked you three weeks ago? What was that? You can, us Saturday girls, Rosa and me, getting the same rate as the Pipper boys. Ah, Yes. And then he went quiet again. So Inga squeezed by him and stomped up the stairs to get the lemonade bottle with a hole in the screw top and fill it with water in the toilet. 1971 and he can't even put down a bloody roll of lino. Or at least slap on a coat of varnish. You were meant to sprinkle the water all over the wooden floor, right for the front shop to the china department at the back, before he swept it, like putting vinegar on chips. But it was supposed to keep the dust down, and it must have worked to some extent, because one Saturday Inga swept the floor without it, and the clouds of dust would have choked a horse. 
It floated down onto the china and books like volcanic ash. The dust was for the newsprint, Mr Wilson said. Even with the water sprinkled on, you would be amazed at how many shovelfuls she emptied between the back shop and the front every Saturday morning. And still it never looked clean. Inga enjoyed it all the same. It was the one quiet time before the customers started pouring in for their Saturday orders and she had to run back and forth to the store to see if Sam and Co had got them made up yet. They were supposed to take it in turns at the sweeping her and Rosa, but Rosa was never in early enough, which made it kind of difficult to ask for a rise in their wages. And why should she do the asking anyway? Rosa was the one that came in shouting about equality for the workers. Well, okay, no shouting exactly, but most of the folk round about didn't have a political bone in their bodies and didn't like to offer an opinion, unless it was about the price of beef cattle or the farmers getting no getting enough for their milk. Still, there wasn't much else you could do with a name like Rosa after Rosa Luxemburg. You're kind of destined. A firebrand, that's what Inga's mother said she was. Now don't you get too caught up with Rosa's wild schemes, Inga. She's a bit of a firebrand, a chip off the old block, her mother said. Rosa's dad was different from other feathers Inga knew. He stood for the council and tried to organise the farm workers, that sort of thing, which went doing like a lead balloon in the aisles. The Red Clydesider, some folk called him. Up for sooth twenty years afore and married Rosa's mother. Politics is all very well for Glasgow, but no for Orkney, folk would say. If he's that keen on communism, why doesn't he not go and live in Russia? I stick him in a council house in Siberia, see who he likes it. That was the kind of thing people said. Inga had even heard them in the shop, a couple of the farmers in for their exchange in Mart, standing at the side complaining about him. She had to stop Rosa getting out from behind the counter to let fly at them. They're not worth it, she said. Just ignore them. All right for you, Rosa said. He's my dad. And that's when Inga noticed the tears in Rosa's eyes. And that's when she decided she would have to give her something special for her birthday. She doesn't get a chance to look at it properly till her tea break. Then she smuggles it upstairs inside a copy of Petticoat. Rosa's busy serving customers and doesn't suspect a thing. Even so, Inga keeps it in the paper and pulls back the edges. The picture makes her scalp prickle. She forces herself to look at it again, half an eye on the door in case Rosa's sent up early for her break. Or anybody else come to that? She doesn't fancy being caught with it. The ribs, she's glad of them. And the boobs. Otherwise the whole thing would hang down limp exactly like a swimsuit or at least a swimsuit with no support cups inside. The ribs make it look more normal and more weird. Yeah, but what is normal anyway? That quiz in last month's honey. Do you have a rib cage like a laundry basket? She had never wasted a single thought on a rib cage before she read that. But when she checked in the mirror, it was sad but true that she took after her dad. Her mum had a narrow torso and her dad was sort of barrel-chested. A barrel-chested man and a laundry-basket-chested woman. No quite the same, was it? Imagine if the boys at school got hold of it. Ha, 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 she's got no fanny. You'll have to stick your thing up the leg hole, Stevie boy. Ha, ha, bloody ha. They'd been like that ever since that grumpy wee man came to the school to give the class some sex education. He was forsooth, a doctor supposedly. Well, could you imagine any of the teachers talking about sex? After the anatomy lesson, the sexual organs and what goes far, 
the pictures of gonorrhea and syphilis. It was a relief to write down their anonymous questions, fold up the bits of paper and give them to the doctor to read out. Can you have sex standing up? Rosa and her tried to guess who'd asked that. Whoever it was, the wee man was not amused. You can have sex swinging from the light if you want, he said. Inga went read when it came to her question. What is the function of the clitoris? <coughs> it's a sensitive part of the female anatomy, he said. Is that all, she thought. But nobody dared to ask any other questions. He looked like he might burst a blood vessel. When Inga gets in for work that night, she manages to sneak the parcel in the front door, upstairs and under her bed, before anybody came she's home. The usual crowd's there. Her dad and her uncle's drinking beer, her aunt's speaking on the sofa, and the kids sitting about watching Doctor Who, except Charlie. He's playing on the floor with his toy cars and... Ooh, the theme tune in a high voice. Her mother's in the kitchen with the door closed, reading the face for the heat and trying to cook for the whole crew. The place is full of smoke and the smell of frying. Bacon, sausages, black pudding, eggs, bread, tatties, tomatoes. She bends down to put the next lot in the oven to keep hot and Inca can see there's already a mountain there. Can I do anything to help? Yes, you can get Utfi under my feet like the rest of them. I'll put some of the stuff that's ready on plates and tack them through. Yes, yeah, sorry Inga, that would be great. Why does she do it? Same thing every Saturday. John sticks as he round the door. When will tea be ready, Mum? I'm starving. It'll be ready when it's ready, she says, and she looks right wild. Only asking. Then David comes through. Don't even say it, their mum points at him with a fish slice. Say what? When will tea be ready? Inga lifts the two plates she's filled and pushes them at David. Give that to Dad and Uncle Joan. What did your last slave die of? Oh, for the love of goodness, their mother says, and she snatches the plates out of Inga's hands and marches through with them. I was only trying to help, she says when her mother comes back through. Yes, well, it's easier to do it myself. But she's a bit calmer since she got the first two served. Inga fills some more plates and carries them through without saying another word. Her uncle's first, then her aunt's, then the bairns. They all sit eating with their tea on their laps except her Aunt Ellie. She has Charlie on her knee and is feeding them from her plate on the sofa. It's peaceful now except for the croaky shouts of the Daleks from the TV. Her mother tries to catch her eye when she goes back in for another couple of plates, but Inga keeps quiet and doesn't look at her. She was only trying to help. She can't see why the boys should get off of doing sweet bugger all when she's been out working. Your nose is black, her mother says. Did you walk up the street like that? Oh no! Inga looks in the shaving mirror above the sink and sure enough there's a black ring round both her nostrils and smudges under her eyes. Bloody panda face. The hanky she fishes from her overall pocket is filthy already, but she blows the black snot into it anyway, then splashes some water on her face and rubs off the printer's ink with a clean corner. That hanky wouldn't disgrace a coal man, her mother says. She's smiling now and trying to make a choke of things, but Inga's no in the mood. If she wasn't mad at her, she might show her Rose's present. Her mother's quite broad-minded. Still, even she might not be too impressed with that picture. I'm going upstairs to change my clothes, Inga says. Place yourself. Midge is in the bedroom getting ready to go out. She's standing on her bed looking at the mirror propped up in Inga's bed to get a full-length view. 
Is that me green blouse, Inga says. It is, it's me blouse. She tugs it out of the waistband of Midge's skirt. I'll go on, Inga. Midge tucks it back in. You're no wearing it the night. I'll wash it, I promise. It'll be back in your drawer the morn. She can't be bothered to Archie Bargie, so she says nothing and sits on her bed in front of the mirror. It suits her sister more than her anyway, though she would never let on. Midge moves her head from side to side, trying to see a reflection past Inga. You make a better door than a window, she says. Who do I look? Fine. Is that all? Inga says nothing and digs the partial out for under the bed. What's that? Rosa's birthday present. Ooh, what did you get her? This. She holds it up in the brown paper and pulls back the edges for the other side like a stage curtain. Midge's mouth falls out open. You're not going to give her that, are you? That dirty book? It is not a dirty book, Inga says. It's about women's place in society and you better close your mouth or you'll catch a fly. Well, it looks like a dirty book to me. Her dad will go bananas. No, he won't. It's political. Midge flaps her hand in front of her mouth and yawns. Boring, she says. Right, I'm off. Where are you going? Oot. Why bother asking? The only place to go on a Saturday night is the Cosmo. The lasses will sit along one side of the hall and wait for the boys to get pissed enough to walk across the floor and ask them to dance. Once Midge has slammed out the front door, Inga tacks the book right out of the paper for the first time. The cover's ground in her. She doesn't see why it's any worse than the photos in Parade or Penthouse. That Mr Bain coming in for his order, staring at her across the counter, while she has to stand there tying up his nudie magazines inside the Daily Express. All this in heaven too, he says and winks. Every bloody week. He was none too pleased the time she rolled up his papers with a playboy on top and tied them tight with a granny knot, the boobs staring straight out at the world. Serves him right. Tack that home to your wife. Rosa's expecting at seven, which leaves not a lot of time to get ready. The bathroom door's locked, of course. Inga shouts through it. How long will you be in there? About five feet ten. Very funny, Alec. I need in to wash. I'm gone out. So am I. Get in the queue. Bella sticks her head out of the sitting room door. I'm next, she says. Oh, forget it, Inga says. She shoves past her into the room, steps over the outstretched legs and picks up her mother's pinking shears from on top of the sewing machine. Why are you going with them? Her mother's voice is raised above the racket of the bairns, shuffling round the room with one arm out, sh- shouting, Exterminate! I'll put them back when I'm done, Inga says, and runs up before anybody else speaks to her. The inside layer of paper the order came in is still pretty smooth, so she spreads it on the floor and sets the spine on the middle of the sheet. Then she marks two cuts at the bottom and two at the top, the width of the book, creases the narrow strips up inside and holds them in place while she folds the paper over the back and front cover. When she's finished, except for the jagged edges made by the pinking shears, it looks just like a French grammar book. Should be easy enough to slip it past Rosa's mum. You're late, Rosa says. I came, sorry, I couldn't get into the bathroom, you can what it's like. Happy birthday! Inga hands her the present and sits down beside her on the bed with the red candlewick bedspread Rosa dyed her sail. What's this? Rosa says. An innocuous tale of love and romance? Inga had written the words in italics with a red felt tip to make it look like the real title of a book. 
Rose's dad comes in with two glasses of his homemade ginger beer. His face is flushed and he's grinning. Looks like he's been into the homebrew himself. From the only bottle that didn't explode in the cupboard, he says, so you better sip it. If it was wine, it would be worth a fortune. What's that? Me birthday present for Inga, Rosa says. Before Inga can warn her note, Rosa is ripping the paper cover right off. The female eunuch, Chairman Greer, she says. Fab, thank you. Inga's face is hot now, and she takes a gulp of the ginger beer. The bubbles go straight up her nose. Let's see, Rosa's dad says. He stares at the cover for a minute, then starts to flick through it. At one page he stops and reads for what feels like ages. Then he looks at Inga as if he's never seen her before and sets the book down in the bed. Silly lassie, he says. Yes, I came into the women's library and I saw a copy of The Female Eunuch on the shelf and I hadn't seen that particular cover for quite a few years, I think. I looked at it again and I thought, God, I remember the impact that cover made on me when I first saw it. It's, it's kind of an iconic cover in a way, but it's, um, it's been around for so long now that it doesn't, its shock value isn't there. But when I first saw it, it was quite daring and shocking and it wasn't the kind of book that girls my age were reading at the time, not in Orkney anyway. So that was, that was really the inspiration for writing about it because when you, when you try to recreate the circumstances in which you first saw something, it's quite, um, it, it sort of reminds you of, of the impact it made at the time. My friend who gave it to me, um, she, was, she was a great reader. She gave it to me for my birthday. Um, and I read it right away and I thought immediately, oh God, this is all the stuff I've been feeling and all the stuff that I couldn't put into words. And if I read The Female Eunuch now, I'd have other things that I would think about it. But at the time, it was, like, it was the first feminist book I ever read and it had a huge effect. I suddenly realised there were other women out there that were thinking through these things and that it wasn't just you know, my my petty grievances with my brothers or, you know, that kind of thing. My mum had six kids. I was looking at her and her life and I thought, you know, I want something different for my life. I don't just want to do the same. I love my mother dearly. I still love her, although she's dead now, six years. But, you know, but um, I didn't want to do the same thing she had done. Socialists that I knew, male socialists, were pretty scornful of feminism at the time and the attitude to women among, you know, male writers and so on was pretty unreconstructed at that time in Scotland and probably all over the world. I gave a copy to another friend whose father was quite a prominent socialist and I don't know if it comes across but when he said, silly lassie, he meant Germain Greer. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody calling German Greer a silly lassie? <laughs> but uh, I, I hoped it remained ambiguous at the end of the story that it could be either Inga or German Greer, but that was when he said it. So he did say that. The, the relationship between fiction and autobiography is quite difficult to, to describe, but there are a lot of things in, that happened in this story that actually did happen to me. Um, I, I mean, practically all of the incidents in the story happened to me. I, I did work in a paper shop on a Saturday, and we did have somebody come to the school to do sex education, 
Um, somebody did ask that question about um, can you have sex standing up? The the the, do- <laughs> the doctor was really really grumpy. He was just bad tempered, and I I did ask that question that the the character Inga asks in the story, and that was the response I got. Uh, so it, I suppose all of it was, you know, you know, that you're that age, teenager, you're learning about sex. There was a lot less of it available to find out about at that time, but um, and the female unit came out, and of course it was it just kind of blew everything out of the water. Thank you for downloading this free Twenty One Revolutions Glasgow Women's Library podcast. To find out more about Twenty One Revolutions, visit our website at womenslibrary.org.uk. There you can find out about the 21 women writers and the 21 women artists who have produced limited edition artworks available to buy from the library while stocks last. You can also find out more about what we do, why we are special and how you can support us. It's all online at womenslibrary.org.uk.